podcast one production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home, where we explore the stories behind the food that we all love. When I first read Matthew Evans' book on eating meat, it was probably on top of a number of books that had got my thinking in a particular place. But it was this particular book that made me really question what I buy and why I buy it, and also why I eat what I eat. Sounds very deep, doesn't it? Maybe it's the point in my life, or maybe it's time for change. A lot of us are really conflicted in one way or another about eating meat. Whether you're a meat eater, a vegetarian, a vegan, a pescatarian, whatever your views, Matthew's insights on sustainable farming and what constitutes ethical eating will give you something to think about. Matthew started his career as a chef, became a food critic, and then gave it all up to start a small farm in Tasmania called Fat Pig Farm, where he now lives with his wife and family. He's written 13 books and he has a new one out called The Commons, which we talked about too. So here it is, Matthew Evans. Matthew Evans, welcome to the show. Author, TV presenter, chef, food critic, farmer, the list goes on. And you got a new book out called The Commons, and it's a fantastic book. So, um, of course, we're going to talk about it because it's a, it's a tome and it's sitting there next to me. Um, but we wanted to find out a little bit about you, like yeah. where it all started. So sure, Gary. Where, where did you grow up? I, uh, I grew up in Canberra, but I was actually born overseas. So I was born in the UK, and, um, and you can tell by my accent, I'm Welsh. Um, <laughs> it, it stands out. Yeah. yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't ask me to sing either. <laughs> uh, no, I, I came to moved out to Canberra with my family when I was five years old, and so my memories are pretty much tiny bit from Wales and mostly of of Canberra in the nineteen seventies. Why did the family move out? Uh, Dad got a job, and um, uh, my parents tight didn't want to have to pay for uh, um, to travel. Uh, Australian government said we'll pay your travel uh, for your whole family, move your whole f- house and all your possessions out to Australia, and if you work for two years, it's free. And uh, my parents, you know, thought free. They heard the word free um, and came out, a job and and free travel. And then they went to stay two years and, and never went uh, back to the UK. Because it's a big difference from where in Wales? Uh, I was born in South Wales, near Abergavenny. All right, so a little bit different from the south of Wales to Canberra. Quite different. <laughs> but, what's, but what's perhaps interesting is where I've ended up, which probably looks a bit more like, uh, yeah, South Wales. Absolutely. What did your dad do? Just out of curiosity, I don't know. Uh, my dad was a chemist. He's a he's okay. a he was a research chemist, and but he got a job with the patent office. So he would look at inventions and if they and assess whether they were a new invention or not. And you could patent the idea, as you still can, and uh, and then protect the idea. So if you come up with a new idea, um, no one else could cash in on it for the first whatever it is, twenty years. Have you got any of your dad's traits? <laughs> I was just thinking as a as a chemist and, and working for the patents office. Yeah. Must be, you must have a certain uh, mindset. Look, look, all of our family's good at maths, and um, I think I'm probably you know my dad was pro- probably on the spectrum, but we didn't know about that back then. You know, he he, uh, and, and I think uh, I, I have some of his obsessive tendencies. And and to be honest, I actually have a science degree, so I did. did my brain is a little bit sciencey, but not as hardcore as his was. I think so. I followed in that. Um, sense, but probably not in many others. Interesting. Is he still alive? No, my dad died about five years ago. Okay. So he, but he saw what you ended up doing and yeah, you yeah, totally ashamed. Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> well yeah. I know. was going to ask you. What did you so what did he think? So, of so what that? does a chemist from the UK think of, uh, uh, of someone who goes off to be a chef? <laughs> 
um, when they're 19, not much really. He um, he was pretty unimpressed with that that move. Um, and but you know, as, as look as, as a teenage boy, as you, I don't know, your family uh, might be the same, but as most teenage boys I know, if your dad tells you you should never do something, hmm. um, that was my motivation to finish my hmm. apprenticeship. Do you remember the conversation? Uh, yeah, yeah. He said there was much more money and uh, better career opportunities in accounting. <laughs> and your response was? My response. Who cares, Dad? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> la, 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 la. Well, no, what was know. it? What was the response? you remember? Uh, I, you know, we never, we were British. We didn't fight. If you're really angry or you disagree with someone, you just went quiet. What did your mum do? Did you, was yeah, your mum my working mom, as well? Yeah, she wasn't working when we first moved out, but she ended up working for the public service as well because living in Canberra, you know, most of the jobs were there. So she went out um, and worked full time. Oh, actually, before that, she used to do these tastings in supermarkets. You know, those people who would stand in the supermarket. Oh, okay. So she had a job she could do while we were at school, just during school hours and be home when we got home from school. And so she'd be that person offering the tastes of, I don't know, Cabanossi. Um, near the deli counter in 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 Woolworths. You didn't and go and terrorise like your mother with your with your mates and. and no, get... we were always at school. It wasn't wagging, Gary. I don't oh, know what okay. you were up to. Oh, I was I at know. school. I, I was... never wagged. I was a good boy. Yeah, I was always like this. So, where did the interest in food come from? Because it's not an obvious uh, connection. And certainly, growing up in in Canberra, was there a lot of inspiration around in Canberra back in the nineteen seventies? Seventies. Yeah, a lot of inspiration. Yeah, I. I, my mum will never listen to this, so I can say it. We grew up with grey everything, grey roast beef, grey roast lamb, grey chops, um, you know, grey cabbage, grey Brussels sprouts, grey carrots, and occasionally grey mashed potato. Um, you know, so, so, so my food experience wasn't necessarily particularly good most of the time. British parents, 1970s Canberra, not a lot of opportunity financially and geographically and culturally to... Um, to, to see good food. But my mum, when she had the time and the money, she cooked really nicely. So um, there was occasions where you go, oh, that's what good food is. Uh, but but I was just hungry, yeah. I just wanted to eat lots. And and I worked out very early. You could hang around with dad, learning how to use a drill or, you know, a jackhammer. I remember we jackhammer. You know, I could hang around with dad doing all that kind of stuff, um, how to, how to you know, use, use a saw or whatever, build stuff, lay bricks. Um, uh, or I could hang around with mum and lick the spatula when we made chocolate cake and steal the best bit of crackling from the roast pork. And, you know, the cook gets the best bit. So I very quickly went, worked out, hang around with mum, and then went, well, you don't only eat better, but you, you know, this process of this transformation of cooking food, what a miracle that is. And I thought, ah, oh, that's, that's fun too. So you don't only get to eat better, you, you can have more fun. But so it's I fell a in big, with cooking. big transition from enjoying that at home and going to work and discovering something that probably wasn't what you expected, I should imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you love cooking, don't become a chef. Yeah. I mean, that, that would be, you know, my experience when I left. Where did you go? Um, when I left school. Uh, I, I went to, uh, I got a job in Canberra, stayed in Canberra for the first, for my entire apprenticeship and uh, worked at a, a very fancy restaurant. Um, menu was written in French. Um, it had those, to be fancy. Yeah, it was in those days, if it was fancy, it was in French. Mm. And it, it had to be in French because the, uh, the chef was German. And the owner was Greek. You know. So bad French. There would have been lots of errors. I'm it wasn't sure, French at all. It wasn't French at all. No, there was. What was really interesting? My chef, um, who who actually, you know, I, I I'm not particularly flattering about him most of the time. But he cooked about half his menu was amazing. We had an asparagus menu because he Germanic background. We would source white asparagus in 1983 or whatever it was, and we, for one month we'd have an asparagus menu, green and white asparagus cooked you know, four or five different ways as a separate menu. And yet at the same time, the demi-glaze came out of a tin, you know, when we were using Rooster Booster, you know, those big tins of um, chicken stock powder, 
to make sauces when you know we had the capacity and the skill to roast the bones and make things properly. So half the menu was kind of great, and half the menu was. Why really do you think? Not why great. do you think that was? Oh, I think maybe he'd done too many years and and just took a couple of shortcuts. I think um, the financial pressures of of running a kitchen, you know, like uh, labour costs. Um, uh, you know, to this day, are, are, are a driver of prices, and where you cut to cut costs or meet a meet a budget, um, it's easier to uh, save on labour and buy something out of a packet um, today, even more so than it was then. Yeah, absolutely. So, how w- what happened then? Did you move to the Big Smoke? Did you go to Sydney? Did you? Yeah, yeah. I ended up going to the Blue Mountains very sh- briefly, and then then to Sydney, um, and uh, but but ended up as a breakfast chef. Um, and, uh, wasn't enjoying the four o'clock wake ups and, and the, uh, and doing breakfast cooking in a large hotel. And so I, uh, I went back to Canberra and got a job as a head chef. Uh, well, I got a job as a chef in a restaurant and they were losing money. They said, what's, what's wrong? Oh, can you help us? And so I looked in the garbage bin and said, well, you're throwing out a thousand dollars of worth of food a week. And they said, do you want to be head chef? So I went from being, you know, kind of apprentice, you know, breakfast chef, suddenly, five years into cooking, you know, one year out of my apprenticeship as a head chef, which was, you know, it's a, a lot of pressure and, and probably too, too early. Too much too soon. Too early in my career. But I did that for a year, got a hat in the Good Food Guide. Well done. Um, and uh, was, you know, uh, was in love with this woman who lived in Sydney, thought I'd moved to, you know, to Sydney to be with her. And so I quit my job, sold my car, moved out of my flat. And um, uh, then she broke up with me. Uh, the day before I moved. So. Well, she didn't know you were going to – she thought the guy was living in Canberra. She didn't know you were No, she knew to... I was coming. That's the problem. That was the problem. Uh, you so, sold everything. How yeah, do I get out of this one? Yeah, yeah. I had no job, no house, no car, no girlfriend, and um, and I was 26 or something. And um, anyway, so I moved in with mum and dad for a while. So there was a transition from chef to food writer. Is that right? Yeah. So what had happened – before I finished my apprenticeship, I actually – I had a lifting accident at work. And so I broke my bottom lumbar vertebrae into three pieces, um, uh, which made my back very unstable and meant I couldn't work for six months. And while I wasn't working, I looked at other options, what I could do. And I started to find articles in the backs of magazines. Um, you know, you're sitting in a doctor's waiting room or, you know, a physiotherapist's waiting room or a specialist's waiting room or whatever. And I was a lot of time in those places and I'd read magazines and in the back was always a food section. And I thought, oh, someone's written about that. And I may never work again in food but as, as a cook, but maybe I could do something else. Someone's written this, maybe I could do that. So I wrote an article. Um, I, wrote a lot, I spent a lot of time trying to work out what to write. And I thought, well, I grew up at mum's apron strings. I grew up learning to cook with my mother. And she had this book written by a woman named Fanny Craddock. And I don't know if you've heard of Fanny. Yeah, of course. The original yeah, celebrity chef. Absolutely. TV chef from the UK. And mum would, we'd be cooking something and mum would go, what? I wonder what Fanny would say about that. And this book was so well used. The spine had fallen off, the cover was gone and the pages were half loose and we would flick through it and, and try to find what Fanny had said because she was really dogmatic. She, it was 1950s, you know, 1960s UK, rationing had just finished, they were heavily into processed foods, but Fanny... Fanny knew what good food was. <laughs> and she had this beautiful thing. Then I can't remember many of the things, but one of the things she said was, you know, we, we wanted to cook crepes. And so we looked up Fanny and Fanny said, look, if your crepes are thick enough to toss, there's only one place to toss them, in the bin. Oh. Right? They should be so and, – and this evocative writing, your, your crepes should be so thin that you can read your lover's letters through them. Right? It's beautiful thing. So mum and I would read this book. That was my formative years, learning to cook with my mum and Fanny – 
And I wanted to, I thought if I'm going to write, I want to write something that has, that I've put some, some of my, you know, my emotion and so that mattered to me, something that mattered to me. And so I wrote about Fanny and that was the first article that I really well constructed. And I thought was really great. And I sent it off handwritten, you know, pre-computers and yep. I didn't have a typewriter, so I hand wrote it and I sent it off to, to um, uh, the Australian newspaper. I thought, well, you know, gosh, they'd be, they'd love to get an article. Start at the top. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, national newspaper. <laughs> and this, and straight away I get this phone call. You know, it was in the days when you had a landline, you know, and, and, and um, guy rings me and goes, oh, I've got this section called Time and Tide. I would love to publish your article. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you 300 bucks. Is that okay? I'm like, oh, 300 bucks. That's like a full week's, nearly a full week's wages for writing, which wasn't work at all. This is fantastic. This writing lark is absolutely brilliant. And um, I was so stoked. I was like over the moon, making heaps of money. It's not even work. I didn't have to stand on my feet for 70 hours. No one threw knives at me. No one burnt me. No one abused me. No one locked me in the fridge. You know, no customer complained about the, my, the handcrafted pastry was, wasn't as good as they could get from Pampas or whatever, you know, working as a chef was like, oh my God, I'm going to see if I can do writing for a living. And I, and I was at that stage working full-time. My back had recovered and I was working full-time in kitchens by then. But I thought, oh, maybe I could write a bit on the side. And, um, and I told this guy, I rang him up and I said, thank you. I've got all these other articles I want to offer you. You know, you know I'm, I'm working on one on eggs and one on chestnuts. And, and he's like, well, I'm like, I've got one on milk. You know, he's like, ah. I said, I'll send them to you. Anyway, I sent them off. He sort of said no, but I sent them off anyway. And I sent, I wrote 10 different articles, sent them off, never heard from him. Eventually found out that the time and tide section of the Australian was the obituary column. Fanny had just carked it. Right. And he... Perfect timing. Perfect timing. It wasn't a very... I don't know if it was... So it wasn't your eloquent... No, it wasn't my... Descriptive writing. Fanny had died and he went... Oh. I wasn't some literary genius who had captured, you know, the... Everyone's imagination of the Australian. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) And um, and funnily enough, the obituary column wasn't keen on articles on milk funnily and eggs. Enough. Yeah, so I never sold any of those ten, which was actually um, a, a, a nice grounding experience. And uh, but the, but it, I, I think having some early success meant, oh, you know, maybe I could write about food as a thing. And was that a natural progression into something like that? I mean, how did that work? Yeah, so I was uh, I was cooking. Um, had discovered there was good food and bad food, partly through reading about it in magazines like Vogue, Entertaining and Gourmet Traveller, which were such world-leading magazines in, in food. And then, as you say, the, the scene was changing. Uh, fell in love with good food, wasn't always getting to cook it in some of the places where I was, um, but, but went and ate in places that I'd heard about or um, had read about and discovered, yeah, there's, really, there's restaurants that serve really good food. Like the whole menu is good, not just like half the menu where I'd trained or... Um, you know, half the asparagus the section. The asparagus, yeah, the, yeah, the, well, the, the, yeah. In September, there was good food uh, at that restaurant, maybe. <laughs> but um, uh, and and I fell in love with you know, going to restaurants and um, and the experience from the front of house where you sit and eat in the restaurant is very different than the back of house. And I f- actually fell in love with that side, eating in restaurants. I was like, oh god, you know, this is costing me an absolute fortune. Um, I wonder if someone can pay me for it. And then discovered restaurant reviews and thought, well, someone's getting paid for this. Why can't it be me? And so um, it did take a long time, but eventually I managed to con someone into giving me a job uh, writing about food and getting paid for it. And so I, I, I ate in lots of places essentially to train myself for the role before I got the role, which was yeah. quite nice, and travelled extensively. So I had a, tried to get a, a cultural 
yeah. understanding from from the, the the places where the food's from, not from um, you know, not from going to an Italian restaurant, yeah. you know, in in Ligon Street. Maybe going to an Italian restaurant yeah. in Italy, um, which has maybe a different um, and connect with the reader. Yeah, yeah. And so my aim is, but my aim has always been, and and I think you probably share this, Gary. My aim has always been to get normal people to eat better. I want them to know when I was cooking for. 20 people in a restaurant or 50 people in a restaurant, I'm hoping to make their life a little bit better and cook them something maybe better than they could cook at home. And and then when I was writing in the early days, it was about, I found something really cool to cook. You know, here's something about it and a recipe. And then when I was writing about restaurants, it's like, oh, there's a, you don't have to eat in a dodgy restaurant. I've found a good one you can go to, which is just up the corner and cost the, you know, up the road and cost the same amount. So it's always been about trying to convey my joy, the joy I get from food whether it's cooking for people uh, or sharing that on, in, in print. What was, the, what was the change? Why from that career and that life and being in Sydney, deciding to, you know, change everything up or change everything down, depending on how you look at it? Yeah, the, that's, a, that's a really interesting um, question because I, 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 it's, in hindsight, it's probably different than what, what I would have said at the time. At the time, uh, I was what two things happened. I fell in love with home cooking again. So I was in love with restaurants. I ate in restaurants ten times a week, you know, most of the year. Five hundred times a year I was eating out to to do my job and to be across all the restaurants, cafes, noodle bars, you know, bistros, whatever. And I loved it. Absolutely loved it. But I think restaurant food is a style of food that you know, it's celebration food. It's special occasion food. It's it, it you know, it might have changed a bit over the last few years in that people are eating out even more, but generally Restaurant food isn't the food you should eat all the time. And I was re- eating it all the time. And my body was saying, oh, you know, my, I was yeah. getting bigger. I was, my body was saying, maybe you need to have something else. And I fell in love with home, home cooking and the idea of how different home cooking and restaurant cooking are. And I fell in love with ingredients and started to realize that, you know, restaurants by definition have to handle, ing- buy the ingredients in ahead of time, handle them a bit more, do more things to them, you know, in order to be able to run a restaurant successfully and give people meals in a timely fashion. Yeah. Whereas home cooks can harvest something very close to the time it's going to be cooked, cook it just once, just for them, you know, and, and, and retain all the inherent flavor. And so I fell in love with the idea of home cooking and the, the in love with the idea of super fresh ingredients and started to scour, you know, the Australian landscape for fresh ingredients and why some things tasted better than others and thought, wow, I met these great growers of, you know, asparagus or these great growers of citrus. You know, maybe I could have a go at growing stuff and see if I can grow something that has inherent quality and flavour and harvest it for my table and serve it to my friends and family um, because the act of cooking and sharing food is is such a beautiful thing um, and if in, even better if it's great ingredients. So the move. So, uh, yeah, living in, in Sydney, overshadowed backyard, grew snails and moss, um, couldn't grow anything there and thought I, thought I had to move. Coming from Canberra in the 1970s, it felt like a country town. I was, I was looking at all sorts of places over Australia, southern WA, um, Gippsland, uh, northern rivers, New South Wales um, and Tasmania. And all of them ha- shared things in common, all of them green for much of the year. All of them, you generally have rolling hills, not big flat areas. Uh, so they have topsoil, they have... Uh, moderate, more moderate climate, um, and they have rainfall, all of which allow you to grow things. But harking back to why I feel more maybe at home now than I ever have in my life, that 
those green rolling hills are probably reminiscent of my first five years of life in Wales. So I think part of it sat, sat, uh, taps into my psyche of this is these are childhood memories of mm. green rolling hills and that's where I feel more at home. Yeah, than, sense of place. Yeah, than the brown sun-baked landscape of Canberra, which while I might have lived there for 20 years, it wasn't my very first five years. Mm. The idea of moving to Tasmania, take 70 acres or 70 hectares? 70 acres. Se- we 70 acres? Yeah, 26. The idea of that then and now, how different has that become? <laughs> the idea of it? Um, yeah, so, so moving to to a farm, you know, I, I had no idea what I was doing and I had no idea of what it would entail and what the day-to-day reality would be. And, um, and so having 70 acres in Southern Tasmania has been transformational. It's, it, it, you know, when you tend the soil and you look after livestock, it has impacts through every part of your life. Your physical, emotional and, and spiritual well-being is all impacted by what you do on a day-to-day. So the, the, the change has been phenomenal. Can, can you give me some examples of that? Yeah, like I didn't, I didn't re- used to realise um, what what growing food entailed in any sense. You know, like 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 the, 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 there's billions of things under the soil that are helping plants grow. I used to I used to think that plants ate dirt and and you know somehow magically grew and and that the farmer's role was to make sure there's enough water and that the, the right plant was in the right spot. And now when we walk the earth and we think that we think about how. Now, for 42,000 years, people have fed themselves from our patch of land and modern farming is, you know, the way you and I would recognise it is a really, is is not sustainable in the sense that Aboriginal fire stick farming and foraging was, but we feed a lot more people. When we walk our land today, we, we think of, can we grow food, delicious, nutritious food on this patch of land for another 4,000 or 400 years. I can't even think 42,000 years into the future. So, so, so all of that entails the farmer and what the person does who's looking after the soil or the person does looking after the plants or, you know, it's always the human involved in the scenario that that's important. And, and we see our role in, in the big picture of farming that we're just one little you know place producing a bit of food, but also in the big picture of geological time, can we not bugger up the land that we've been gifted for this period of time and leave it in in good condition and maybe even better condition for the people who come after us? Um, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's pretty deep and we can go deeper. In <laughs> the first year of being on this farm, were you thinking, what were you thinking back then? Because surely it would have been a, there would have been an idea of, you know, like lot, I think lots of people think, oh, I'd love to move the country and have a little small holding. And people do it and then they move back to the city because it's just hard. Yeah, so the first farm... And I they have... can't grow enough to eat and they can't... <laughs> you know what I meant? Yeah, it's... yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, we see it all the time. Real estate agents sort of love love what we do because <coughs> because we have a public profile and lots of people go, oh, I want to do that. And real estate agents love it because they don't... Prices... You know, is it, a real estate agent doesn't need prices to go up. They just need to keep selling the same property. And lots of people... So you can turn it over every three years because turn, somebody's yeah. moved from the city. Someone's moved from the city and, and, and is looking for the dream and not everybody you know, is it a dream. Um, the first year I lived on the land was actually a smaller farm than we have now, but um, uh, uh, really I just wanted to get through every day. I mean, there was no thinking long term um, in terms of you know soil health or, or is it going to be sustainable. I didn't know how quickly you could bugger it up. And the first year I did lots and lots of stuff and managed to do some damage to that land that would take you know, five, 10 years maybe to recover. 
um, because I didn't really understand the carrying capacity and what you can what what you do. I mean, it, the, the simplest analogy is cutting down a tree. It takes a lot. It's a lot quicker to cut one down than, than to grow one. And all of caring for for land is it's much easier to quicker to ruin it than it is to repair it. Um, and in that first year, I was just so excited to be able to grow something, to milk a cow, to have sheep, to fatten pigs, to make my own prosciutto, to, you know, um, all of the things that, you, that living close to the soil allowed us to do, um, allowed me to do. But um, but at the same time, I didn't realise the repercussions of what I was doing. And now I've spent the last few years trying to think um, more holistically about what we do and its repercussions. Did you make mistakes that nearly cost the dream? Yeah, yeah, definitely made mistakes. And I think I think the biggest the, the ones that hit you hardest are um uh for me are the, are the ones with livestock, so when you're you're responsible for another sentient being and the, the one that hit us hardest was the death of a milking cow, which was um uh, sudden, unexpected and grim as as all hell and broke broke our spirits. Like it really just hurt us because a milking cow is a you have a very tactile, very personal relationship with them, and, and, and a really strong attachment. And all, I think, any death is always relative to the attachment you have to the um, to the person or animal uh, that dies. And, and we had such a strong attachment, and had spent so much time trying to make this cow well when she was sick. And we seriously considered buying a flat in Hobart with no garden and just going, we are, you know, we can't be trusted with animals. We can't be trusted with land. Um, and, uh, had to question our, our, the responsibility that we have as, um, custodians of livestock and, and, uh, and land, what, whether we had it in us to be, um, to be trusted with that. And why did you keep going? Why do we keep going? Uh, I still ask myself that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, because look, I think really we do what all, I think, I think most thinking humans do, which is you wake up every morning slightly optimistic that the day is going to provide some joy and pleasure and hopeful that you will be better than the day before. That's what humans do. We are always striving to be just a little bit better at something in doing something, you know, as a parent, as a cook, as a farmer, as, as a worker, whatever it is, we all just, that's what humans do. And so I think we just went, well, if we don't do this, what will we do? And we, what lessons can we take from, from, from what's happened? Um, and, uh, and we talked to lots of other people, you know, like there's this, this saying in, in, in the farming community, if you have livestock, you have dead stock, right? I spoke to dairy farmers, the sort of thing that killed our cow. If you've got 200 cows, you might get it once in 10 years. One cow gets it. It's, you know, it's really bad, but you got one cow <laughs> and one cow gets it on your first year. Yeah. Uh, you know, it it's, feels much worse, but the chances of it happening are, are not very high. Yeah. And so it's not necessarily, wasn't necessarily our fault. It was just the way the cards fell for us. And then when you, you realize that and you look at other farming systems and go, well, things die all the time for us to, to be able to house ourselves, to build this studio that we're in, to, for me to be able to drive a car. Um, yes, that death wasn't uh, particularly pleasant and it affected us, but it's not. Every time humans exist in the world, we have an impact on the environment and the animals around us and we have to accept that and try to be comfortable with the impact that 
we as individuals have. Mm. And as a farmer, we feel that we've found a right place with that. Now you've been, you're, you're obviously written the commons, which is, you know, your new book, but I bought your last book. You've been a busy author. How many, how many books have you written? Uh, over the years? 13. So yeah. 13. So your yeah. last book was on eating meat and that was, I mean, I've read a whole lot of, I mean, as a foodie, I suppose we tend to read these things, but things like Omnivore's Dilemma and mm. Cooked and all these kind of things. And on eating meat was my airport grab where I'm going to grab that. And it, it it's um, all about the ethics, I suppose, of being a omnivore. Would that be right? And yeah. our farming. I love that book, by the way, just because oh, it, and it, and it, but it's made me a little obsessive about more obsessive than I was before I was saying to Dave earlier that you know I've always cared I felt that I cared about where things have come from but now I'm really paying attention and I'm putting my kind of money where my mouth is and it can be quite expensive when you start paying attention when you're trying to do the right thing yeah can you talk a little bit about that whether yeah. you know what the most important things are in that book and what the take home take take homes are yeah because yeah. it's a big book there's a lot of information in yeah there. I cover a lot of things fake meat and yeah, methane emissions from cattle and, you know, the impacts of growing peas on animals, all sorts of stuff. The, the, the take home really was what, what, what I came to the book with this, um, I feel very conflicted about my meat eating, that, you know, n that something has to die for me to eat meat. So I, so, so, and I, I was vegetarian for a couple of years, you know, um, a few years, quite a few years ago now. And so I've always had this thing about, is it okay to eat animals? And um, the book really doesn't, I don't want to convert anyone to eat animals or to not eat animals. Um, uh, you know, it's not, it's not, I'm not trying to convert anyone to any way of thinking other than to be more conscious about what they eat, but that everything has an impact and that there, there are animals that are well-raised and might meet your personal moral and ethical standpoint, how an animal should be treated in the environment in which the animal is raised. And there are things that wouldn't. And it, and it can still be the same species of animal. It can still be beef cattle, or it can be a chicken. But but there's a lot of differences in farming, and that that every time we eat food, there is an impact, and um, it doesn't really matter whether you eat vegetables and grains and don't eat meat or do eat meat. Um, there are still impacts, and and how is the best way for each person to navigate their own path through that? So. Um, I know, I remember someone saying they read the book, oh, and they felt really oh, slightly anxious about um, their meat eating, but they hadn't got to the end. And at the end, what I hope is that people feel empowered and don't feel guilty about their choices, but feel that when they can make a better choice, it's such, you know, the, 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 the wallet in your back pocket, the, the, the purse in your handbag is such a powerful tool to be able to support good farming systems that look after the welfare of animals and the environment. Um, and, and, and every time you buy food, you can, if you've got a chance to make a better choice, you will make um, the world a better place. Yeah. I mean, I hold, I've said it a couple of times on the podcast, but I remember when Paul West came in here, he said, you know, there was a little thing he said, if you don't cook, you don't care. And I really like that because I thought it quite encapsulates the idea of people in their busy lives just grabbing things and, mm. you know, a bottle of water and a takeaway meal or ordering, you know, which is my bugbear, ordering Uber for everyone in the family, but they've all got a different Uber, yeah. you know, so there's something coming from the chicken shop and the Thai takeaway. I just, it's it's the death of good food. Yeah. In, in the book, you talk quite a bit about, we've mentioned it a few times, about the reality of what's done in our name. And I think people are quite happy in a sense to not, want to know what's happening outside of, say, this big city of Melbourne. 
Yeah, and that's and and I think we we have this great capacity to uh, to be able to do that to compartmentalize. So, yeah. so I think one of the great examples is you know you t- you talk to someone about um, you know their dog. They've just spent three grand on their dog on you know some healthcare or whatever, and they carry it around in their handbag, and you know it's like a like a, a child substitute or whatever, and and they couldn't countenance anything. Any any sort of cruelty or you know the, the the dog being you know chained up for any length of time. It the dog is so important to them. But then they will feed their dog chicken necks that come from and the chicken necks come from an abominable you know industrial farming system where animal welfare is way down the priority list. And people really care about the dog and don't care about the chicken. And I think we're very good at compartmentalizing things simply by our attachment to them. Um, I think my aim with the book was to point out that. As a modern uh, wealthy nation, we we've moved beyond food security. So we have enough to eat. Not sadly, to be really honest, Gary. You know, one in ten, one in um, five people don't in Australia get enough to eat. So these topics are not you know relevant to people who don't get enough to eat on uh, every day. But when, when you do have enough to eat as a nation, and we we as a nation do. Um, uh, you, then you have you care about quality in terms of you know is it does it bring joy does it bind you as society but then the next level of thought is and, and all societies go through this is uh, is what I'm eating causing harm and lots of people want to think that when they eat as when they travel or do other things that they are not causing unnecessary harm and uh, it, we will always have an impact on the world around us but there are ways to eat that cause less harm and ways to eat that cause more harm and my aim is when people eat to to maybe think about how they can cause less harm. I love making this series and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One Australia or wherever you listen. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. You talk a lot about the, the current, the common themes, I suppose, in that in that arena. You talk a lot about sustainability and about having a farm with lots of different animals, different crops, doing all the right things to keep that soil vibrant and you know, alive for the hundreds of years going forward. Is, is, that, is that a reality? You know, when you look at big ag, I've heard, you know, big agricultural business, I've heard, you know, it said it's a bit like the supermarkets. If there's any real change to be had, these are the businesses that can actually make change that will Im- impact lots and lots of people rather than hoping that you're going to end up with lots of smallholders supplying a city of four and a half million people. Yeah. Look, it's a mix. It's, and, and it's really easy in Australia, um, especially if you travel at all through the through the inland, to see big ag and see huge monocultures or spaces you know, for one species of um, animal or plant. Um, but I think it's important to remember 70% of the world's food is grown by smallholders. So 70% of the world's food is currently grown on, on 25 acres or less by families, uh, family-run farms. So that's actually the predominant food fr- production system in the world. A good... A sustainable farm is an ecosystem, so you can. It it needs to have balance within the the species that are on it, and they can be 
um, mostly plant species, but you might have some animal species. And a monoculture doesn't provide that. So you can do it for a while, but you can't do it forever. And um, But there are ways to use large spaces in Australia and and put variety in to, to rotate crops and perhaps even livestock through the one area to look after the soil and look after um, the ecosystem. Because a farming e- ecosystem isn't like wilderness and it isn't like an original Australian um, ecosystem before when yeah. Aboriginal people did their, their own style, style of um, fire stick farming and, and foraging. But it but it, it can be a balanced system and but a balanced system needs it has plants and animals and it has diversity and that's you can do that in a small scale and you can I've been reading lots about this at the moment and you can certainly do it on a big scale but what we've done over the last 80 years is um, essentially mined the soil stripped it of, of a lot of the goodness and 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 relied on artificial inputs which are um, uh, and have not done the soil any favors and if you look at Farmers' profits, farmers' profits around the world, including Australia, are tending towards zero. Most farms in America now rely on an off-farm income. Most farms in Canada rely on an off-farm income. Most farms in Australia rely on an off-farm income. So, so you know, farmers aren't making a lot of money out of growing food. Um, and the more they're pushed to, to produce food at a certain price, a low price, something has to give. And sometimes the farmer will push the land because in their, in the next five, 10 years, you know, to stay financially afloat, the only thing they can do is have more animals or more crops or more things grown on that patch of land. But that doesn't do the soil any favours. The magic bit of the earth, the soil that grows everything, um, doesn't do it any favours. So in the long term, we can't mine Australia's soil of all its nutrients and damage the environment which feeds us, at some point we have to start to give back to the mm. land. And that, that will involve diversity, involves some super clever people who are doing amazing things all over the world, um, but getting that more widely accepted in the agricultural community. Yeah. You think people, you talk about um, the smell of money um, yeah. and the smell of ammonia, which I was even reading and I was quite, you know, surprised about. Yeah. You know, that there's obviously a density of livestock, for example, that one, it's almost like when you've got, I, I equate it in a silly way to a, a restaurant. You know, you know when you're making money when, you know, you, the staff are just on the edge. They're running around, they're looking a little stressed. You're not getting that coffee as quickly as you should do. That's the point that that restaurant's making money. If you're yeah. walking in and there's a few staff wandering around and polishing cutlery, you're not making any money. Yeah. And you describe a farm being, you know, having a density of livestock that's that high. The, the smell of ammonia is just overpowering. And apparently there's a little saying in certain parts of the business that that's the smell of money. Yeah. That's when they know they're making money. Yeah, yeah. And I was really surprised at that because, yeah, you and I would go to a really intensive chicken farm or a pig farm or a feedlot where they have, yeah, they're essentially like cramming as many animals together as, as is, is physically possible using, you know, sometimes pharmaceuticals and other um, tricks to keep them alive, you mm-hmm. know, um, uh, because because as soon as you cram animals together, You've humans included, problems. you end up with disease and and other issues, and cramming them together into a way, and then you end up with this mass amount of manure, which in a paddock is comp, you know, compost, but in a confined space is is toxic, and yeah, this this smell it makes you gag, it burns your nose, you have to throw your clothes away after you. I went to pig farm, they go, oh, make sure you can burn your clothes after you leave, you know, bring some old clothes. There are people who work in that environment every single day, and and. The saying was, yeah, oh, and I'd, I'd get out of the car going, oh, 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 and they, you know, gagging, and the, and the owners would go, yeah, smells like money, and 
that's a really different mindset. You know, essentially that's toxins. That's, you know, that's dangerous amounts of bacteria. It's poo in and on everything that makes it smell like that. And, um, but for them, that is, that's, that's how you make money. Just, just get more and more animals as closer and closer confined as you can. That's the business. There's a really, I, I really liked in the, in the book, and I know it sounds very strange, but there was a title, there was a chapter in the book, I think it was called The Slaughterman. Mm. And it was not a very big one, but it, you actually spoke to a guy who'd been a, who'd worked in an abattoir. Yeah. I presume he ran a, a business, didn't he? Yeah, he owned the abattoir and he was, was the slaughterman. And his perspective of it. Can you just kind of summarise that for us a little bit? Because I thought that was really interesting because in, in a, and I've read it before, but in a sense how we do separate ourselves from the kind of grim reality, you know, of the kill and then what we actually have on our plate. Yeah. So he, he ran a very small abattoir and when he told me the numbers, I couldn't believe that he had been involved in so many, um, the deaths of so many animals because it seemed like a very small abattoir just up the road from us. He owned it for a decade or so, um, I think, and... Uh, but but he killed, you know, he added it up. He goes, oh, I killed 50,000 head of cattle, like 50,000, you know, large, warm-blooded, soft-eyed animals is, is, is a lot. And he only did that because that's what society expects of a slaughterman um, and someone had to do it. And the impact on him, you know, he, he's he's now retired or semi-retired. Pretty, pretty, he's gone from, from, the, um, from the abattoir. And the impact on him is uh, that he doesn't even like fishing anymore. Doesn't like to kill a, a fish. Doesn't like to. Doesn't really eat beef. You know, after w- one experience with one calf on one day, one out one out of fifty thousand animals, and it was probably the cumulative effect of having to kill on other people's behalf. Um, but one, this one calf looked at him in a certain way, uh, and he killed it, and then he hasn't been able to eat beef since. And this, this, I think it's the really important thing that. When we eat meat, when farmers grow anything, because I've got farm, I know I've got friends who grow strawberries who shoot ducks, and people who grow apples who shoot possums. You know, it's not lots of people kill on your behalf all the time. But what you ask of a farmer, but what you ask is a lot. But what you ask of a slaughterman is is maybe too much because asking one individual to kill constantly and not suffer any kind of mental or emotional trauma. We're probably not hardwired for that. And, and interviewing uh, David, I think, gave me that impression that, you know, killing one or two animals to feed your family for a year mm. is different to killing 50,000 to ki- to feed everyone else's families. Um, and I think it'd be a rare human that would be hardwired to cope with that. Yeah. I never thought before that when you talk about taking a life, to how many chickens are killed in this country Every uh, 650 million chickens. 650 million year. chickens. And you're talking about uh, in killing something, wh- what life is worth what? So it was a chicken will feed four, five, mm. maybe six people, depending. Yeah. Could do a couple of meals. And they were saying, but if you take another life, like a cow, it can feed, it would give you 280 meals, meals. for example, roughly. That's yeah. what I kind of remember. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that, it's quite an interesting analogy. Yeah. Know, because we eat more chicken than anything else in this country. Yeah, and I think, um, and a Buddhist put it to me once, you know, this this idea that if you're going to eat an animal, make sure it's a big one. Like, because if you're going to take the animal's life, you know, you, you, you just take one life and get yeah. 280 portions as yeah. opposed to a life and getting two, four, six yeah. portions. And, and that's where I think the whole debate around eating meat gets really complicated because um, 
uh, you know, because because is, is, do we value each life as much as the other? And the answer is we just simply don't. You know, you, the life of your dog is more important than the life of, um, mm. you know, a, a pig on a farm or than um, a rat caught in a combine harvester or something like that. Yeah. It just is. And you talked about your land, for example, when you walk out in the morning and do a little survey, it's carnage out there <laughs> and, not, and not on a human's behalf that people forget that, you know, there's dead possums and bandicoots and birds and... Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I read a ridiculous fact. It's probably not, it's not relevant at all, but how many birds are killed just hitting windows of tall buildings in cities that are all glass? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's in a, the millions. Yeah, and yeah. people and, just don't realise it. Yeah, so a billion birds die every year in America hitting windows and nobody bans windows, you know. It's no. like, so is the life of that... But you know, so we have to accept that there are consequences of what we do, but and also this idea of suffering and and responsibility. So I'm responsible for my farm animals, but when I see a sick wallaby, um, you know, I'm not responsible for the sick wallaby because it's not my farm animal. But it's suffering is suffering. That animal is still suffering. It's sick. It's going to have its eyes pecked out by the um, by the hawks probably, and 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 um, be you know eaten alive by a devil in the night or something like that. It's not a particularly nice death. That would be illegal for me to allow my farm animal to suffer like that. Yeah. But, so it does make you kind of question all these ideas of suffering and how we frame them. Yeah. Um, I, I don't have the answers. I just have lots of questions yeah. about that. But they're interesting to answer because obviously the movement of eating, you know, people are talking about um, vegetarianism and talking about the, you know, the way that we're farming obviously is unsustainable. But I think they're also, as a whole, we're getting very confused about so you talk about sustainability, talking about lots of crops, lots of animals, preserving the soil, and yet on the other hand, we're talking about not eating meat at all, just because we just want we can't be part of any kind of suffering, and yet that's not entirely correct, is it? And yeah. and probably the facts that we're getting aren't entirely, yeah, well balanced. Uh, there's some really really great things you can read out there on on veganism and and animal suffering and and intense you know how what we do to animals and but what i find really interesting is is they're all written by people who don't grow food farmers kill things all the time so you can eat grains so you can eat pistachios so you can eat apples so you can eat cherries animals die all the time so you can eat fruit vegetables and grains and so the people who say you know don't kill any animal to put on your table as meat they're never farmers. They never grow food commercially because the because the the reality of growing food commercially is something diet. So you, you create nutritious, delicious food. Something else wants to eat it. You know <laughs> that's that's birds, what happens. Mice, yeah, birds, yeah. yeah rodents, yeah, 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 insects. Yeah. yeah, the local organic strawberry farmer, you know, shooting ducks to eat his strawberries. It's 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 not you know people killing deer because they they get into the pea crop. Um, you know though they're. There is lots of things happening all the time. I, what I'd like to think is that we use the animals we um, rear um, better. We use the animals we kill more efficiently. So all the all the um, you know the, the camels and kangaroos that we kill every year, uh, the wild pigs, you know, don't get left to rot. Um, uh, we're protecting wetlands and, and and national parks and arid areas, killing the, a lot of these animals, uh, not just crops. Um, they kill millions of these animals every year, and most of them are wasted. So wouldn't mm. it be better to use those ones that we already kill and uh, and, and not rear something else and then kill it as, you know, so we're yeah. two, two deaths, not one. So vegans right now, I mean, it's, veganism is gaining momentum, but one of the things that they always argue or the people that are anti-meat is the number of cows, for example, on the planet yeah. are causing global warming. Yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting one. And look, there, 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 are, there are arguments 
that, that could support that, and there are lots of arguments where it doesn't support that. So what happens is the theory is a cow burps out methane. Methane is really, really powerful greenhouse gas. It's way more powerful as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So if there's lots of cows, there are lots so of... So that's where you get the car and the cow comparison. Yeah. Where people go, cows are creating yeah. more global warming. Yeah, more, yeah. More because the car's not putting out methane. Cars. And, and, and And methane is you know, 26 to 64 times more powerful than, than, than carbon dioxide. So methane, devil's work, coming out of a cow's mouth. But... I think you've got to put things in context. Um, global warming is in, is caused by an increase in carbon in the atmosphere. A lot of that carbon has come from soil because of the way we farmed. Um, a lot of carbon comes from fossil fuels. Fossil fuels were stored underground 300 million years ago, and that's coal, oil, and natural gas. So they're all being released into the atmosphere. Now, cows, yes, they release methane, but all that methane's gone in 10 years, right? It's it's, it's dissipated and gone from the environment. So it's super powerful for 10 years, 12 years, and then it's all gone. But the most important thing to remember with a cow is that if you have 100 cows who are all burping out methane, and in 10 years' time you have 100 cows that are all burping out methane, there is no impact on the climate because that's a, that's a stable amount of gas that comes and goes from the environment. If you add more cows, yes, you do get a slight uh, blip in, in the amount of... Um, global warming potential. But if we killed every cow on earth tomorrow, every ruminant, so everything with four stomachs, so cows, goats, sheep, um, uh, you would it would only give us 10 years grace because in 10 years' time, the effect of that methane would have gone anyway. So, so, so and, and a cow who eats grass, grass is a renewable resource. So grass captures carbon from the air, turns it into carbon dioxide, uh, into uh, carbohydrate. The carbohydrate is eaten by the cow. The cow then digests grass, something you and I can't digest, and burps out methane. So that carbon is is in a, is in a cycle, is in a loop. It's like a you know a bathtub full of carbon or whatever. You know the cow's not adding any carbon to the system. It's only using carbon that's already in the system. So a, car, a cow on its own can't change the balance of carbon. Only fossil fuels can do that. And the, and there is a spike in methane emissions at the moment that's, that they're worried about is causing um, global warming. But that's we have got less cows than we used to. And we've got less me- methane emissions from cattle than we used to a few years ago. That methane that's in the atmosphere today is coming from fracking. And, and nobody said, it, you know, I don't hear the vegans going, we've got to stop fracking. So yes, methane is an issue, but it can be contained in a, in a balanced system where we don't add cattle to the system, um, it, it makes no difference to global warming. Kill every cow today, you've, got, you've only got 10 years grace, which is not a long time when carbon dioxide exists in the environment for thousands of years, not 10 years. How do you feel about that activism? How do you feel about, I mean, I, I'll, I'll be honest, I mean, I remember I was driving along the freeway and there was a big banner across the Monash, which was, you know, a vegan-sponsored um, banner. And I just thought, no one cares. Well, no one's reading that, like, really. And they're looking at it and going, well, that's not me. The message just seems to me misdirected. And actually, when we were filming MasterChef one day in South Melbourne Market, we were surrounded by vegans with holding up duck, pictures of ducks. Mm. And don't get me wrong, I feel sympathetic and I'm also, as a as a cook, as somebody who loves food, I think our responsibility to animals is one of our greatest challenges going forward in our farming mm. practices. But do you think that activism is is misdirected? Look, activism, it depends what the activism is. And and so veganism, I think, has some really good valid points. Mm. And if you want to uh, reduce your impact on animals, potentially veganism is good, but it depends on what fruit and vegetables and grains you buy, really. But but it has some potential there. Um 
I think it's simplistic. I think for the last 100,000 years of human history, we've seen food, not vegan food or, you know, meat and, you know, vegan. It's, it's, it's just been food. We, we take something that's high quality protein and high nutrient density. And, and if it's uh, valuable, we put it in our diet. And, um, uh, but, but you've got to think of it, I think of it this way. Activism, we've had really strong activism for the last 50 years. And um, what has that achieved in animal welfare outcomes? Because what they're against mostly is intensive farming. A lot of them want us to what, stop eating meat altogether, but but they're, they're the pointy end. Yeah. Their point they is is they they say it's they want to decrease suffering. And what have we ended up with? We have more intensive farms, rearing more intensive livestock than we ever have in 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 the past. So so the net result of their activism has has been an increase in factory farming. So essentially, their activism has failed. The other thing that happens is when an animal activist says, you're eating meat, your meat is murderer, we're not just individuals in, uh, existing in a moment in time. We're a result of our, our, our history. So when you, you attack meat eating, you attack my grandma who cooked me Christmas dinner because she cooked meat. You, you attack my family who might have meat as part of their diet. So attack never works. If you want to change, change someone's mind, you know, you, it, it never works by attacking. If you've got a reasoned debate and you want to have a, a nice argu- argument and you can show that you are happier, healthier, you know, um, everything um, through, through your diet, perhaps, um, great. Um, but being preachy, antagonistic and um, humorless makes me think that maybe you're on the wrong track. Like, I don't want to be preachy, antagonistic and humorless. I'd rather be I, – I, I, I like to think that people would define themselves not through their diet but by their humanity. Yeah. Really. How does it change? Uh, oh, look, I, I, because I, I tend to feel that, you know, for 20 years, you know, we've been banging away at free-range chicken eggs, cage-free chicken eggs. And, yeah, I still go to the supermarket and three-quarters of the shelves are full of – really bad eggs and there'll be a little bit down the end. And I think that people think they've done their bit because yeah. they they're not around anymore, are they? Cage-free eggs are done, they, but they are. Well, they are around. But, you know, actually, interestingly, Gary, most of the eggs sold in supermarkets and uh, food stores these days are um, not cage eggs. Um, so we've reached a tipping point. Most of the cage eggs are sold to the food industry. It's chefs, yep. hotels, restaurants, clubs. Yeah, because they're cheap that are letting us down. And, and, uh, but we as a society have to decide, are cage eggs an appropriate thing? Mm. I did a price differential in, in the book. I think it's six cents or something difference on an egg. Most people can afford that. Most, you know, club bistros can afford to spend six cents extra on an egg. Um, uh, it's not going to break us to, to get rid of the cage system as a, as a society, but, but it's not my choice and not your choice. Society has to decide that. But what's interesting about the eggs is that consumers have demanded it more and more and more free range and less and less and less caged over, over time. So that's capitalism working. Yeah. We just got to get the- It's pretty slow though, because that's just eggs. Yeah. Well- And then we're kind of shopping for everything yeah. else in the same way. Turning like the I, Titanic. Yeah. Now, on a, on a more uplifting and- Talking about home cooking at the very beginning, your new book. Yeah. Tell us, tell us about that because that is beautiful, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, I think the publisher done and designer's done an amazing job with this book. This this book is, I guess, a summary of my life up to this point and my, the message up to this point. And and so what I was trying to encapsulate was what it's actually like to pace the earth and grow food and cook food in one corner of the world 
over a year, so all the different seasons, and the joy that brings, and some of the, um, you know, I, it's not all a rosy picture. I, I'm, there's some lots of diary entries and, um, and and stuff in there to sort of paint what it's really like to care for livestock and grow food, and what I was what I hope with all my work, but this is, I guess, trying to, trying to give examples that are very specific from our place in the world is saying to everybody, you, you know, good food isn't just for Christmas and birthdays. Good food isn't just in gourmet travel, right? Good food is certainly not just in restaurants. Good food can be on your table on a Tuesday night. But maybe if you can buy something locally, maybe you could grow something, some herbs or, you know, carrots or tomatoes or something. Maybe you could meet the grower at a farmer's market or chat to a good butcher who knows the source of the product. And and all of that with a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of care can embellish your table. And and by embellishing your table, that's the, you know, we, you and I bang on about food. We're, bloody, we're food nerds, aren't we? Like really, most people got better things to do with most of their life. Food's just something that gets them through. But the magic thing about food is when humans come together and share it. So when we break bread at the table, when you serve, you, you cook for someone uh, or someone's cooked for you and you sit and share food and share stories and share that commonality at the table, that that's the joy of food. We all have to eat, but the, but what it brings to us as, a, as individuals, as families, as communities, as a nation is pure, should be pure pleasure. And so what I was trying to do is go, you know, I grew up with pretty bad food. You might've grown up with bad food. You can have good food all the time, but it doesn't have to be expensive and it doesn't have to be complicated. Uh, and, and it probably should be on a, you know, home, should be home cooking that does most, because that's what most people eat most of the time. That's the stuff that draws us together and makes us um, a better society. I just want to stop there because that was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, we can do we can do Matthew Evans part two, but I'd like to do it in Tasmania. So, can we organise that? Sure. Brilliant, yeah. Matthew Evans. Thanks very much thanks for coming, for having me, Gary. Cheers. Having Matthew Evans in the studio certainly makes you think, doesn't it? And I think our responsibility is going forward just to be a little bit more conscious about where our food comes from and to really appreciate, just to stop and think every time we choose to eat meat that we have actually taken a life for it. So with that in mind, let's take something like a roast chicken. I think we can all be guilty of just eating chicken probably more than once or twice a week and not thinking about it at all. And I kind of rewind the clock and I think about how my grandmother would cook. Chicken was expensive, number one. She would do a number of things to make sure that she got more than one meal out of the roast chicken. And you've got to ask yourself, do you do that? So let's take it step by step. Number one, when you're roasting the chicken, drain the fat put it in a little container and use that fat for cooking. We're really health conscious. We're worried about whether or not we should eat animal fats, but now things have changed. We know that we can eat those animal fats and it's not as bad as we once thought it was. So that's number one. We get a little bit of chicken fat and we can use it again. Number two, cut the chicken off the bone, eat our meal, maybe eat a little bit less meat. Remember what Matthew said? That's a contribution to the environment. Now we're getting a second meal, maybe a third meal out of that one roast chook. Then what I would do is I'd strip all the little bits of the meat off the bone. Like, take the time to do it. It's part of the clear-up. It's part of the wash-up. Now you've got meat for sandwiches. You've got a third or a fourth meal. And then if you're really committed, then take those bones 
cover them in a little water, maybe add a little bit of fresh herb or some fresh vegetables, bring it up to a simmer, simmer it for probably about 30 minutes, let it sit for five, strain it, and you've got a nice light chicken stock. Ready for soup, ready for just a broth. But you know what? If we're talking about respect, if we're talking about taking a life, creating more than one meal out of it, that's how we have to think about food. And you know what? It's delicious and it's the right thing to do. Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Swalensky with audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.